Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Uh, we are in a series called Essentials, and we've been looking at some of the most essential, crucial doctrines of the Christian faith, asking the question, what separates Christianity from all other world religions? What makes it stand out? What makes it unique? And what are the essential core beliefs of the church? We're wrapping that series up today, and we're going to be starting a new series through the book of Nehemiah next week, and that'll carry us pretty much through the summer. But if you've missed any of these messages, I encourage you Go back and listen to them. This is, this is vital stuff. Amen? This is vital stuff, and it's been really good to explore that with you. So turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Today we're going to talk about Jesus and the Spirit. One of the most fascinating things about the Gospel of Luke is Luke's emphasis on Jesus living and ministering in the power of the Spirit. And that is crucial to the Christian faith. And we're going to explore that today, okay? Luke chapter 4, we'll start in verse 14. If you're there, say amen, just so I know you're there. All right. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus is reading this. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Remember how we talked about last week is that when Jesus took on humanity, that's, that's what the incarnation means, is that Jesus, the son of the living God, fully took on flesh. So that means that with, if we were alive when Jesus walked, talked, and ministered on the earth, we might have looked at him and thought, that's a man. It's a human. But yet there was something unique about Jesus that caused people who looked upon him, not knowing fully who he was, to go, isn't this just Joseph's son? What is this that's so unique and special about Jesus? That's what we want to try to understand today. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, in the same way that you empowered Jesus to teach, to speak with authority, 
I ask, Lord, that you would grant me the same spirit, the same authority, the same kind of anointing to speak and proclaim your truth. I am feeble and frail, but Lord, your word is powerful and eternal, and so we ask that you would move powerfully among us in our hearts and minds today. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. How many of you have seen the movie The Princess Bride? Raise your hand. Most of you have, I think. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great movie. It was made in the 80s, one of my favorite movies, and it's just one of those movies that's just quotable, isn't it? There's so many one-liners. If you haven't watched the movie, just indulge the majority of us that have, but you, you remember the mowage. Mowage, right, is what brings us together, you know, you, you remember, and inconceivable. And then the famous line from Inigo Montoya, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, right? Well, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when Inigo Montoya is about to have a sword fight with another character named Wesley who's masquerading as the Dread Pirate Roberts. And Inigo Montoya is, is, has been hired by this sort of crime boss named Vincini. And as the sword fight is about to begin, he tells Vincini, look, I'm going to fight him with my left hand. And Vincini's like, why? He said, because if I fight him with my right hand, which was his dominant hand, it would be over too quickly. I would kill him too quickly. It won't be any fun. And Vincini's like, whatever. But he says, I'm going to fight him with my left hand. And so he begins the sword fight with Wesley, the Dread Pirate Roberts, with his left hand. And actually, Wesley is fighting with his left hand as well as they begin the sword fight. And at some point in the middle of the sword fight, Inigo Montoya kind of smiles and looks at Wesley and says, I got something to tell you. I'm not left-handed. And he switches to his right hand. And then the, the sword fight sort of escalates and goes forward. And, and they're battling and battling. He finally gets Wesley pushed up against some rocks. And Wesley looks at him and says, I've got news for you, I'm not left-handed either. And he flips to his right hand and ends up winning the sword fight. It's a great scene. You ought to watch the movie. It's one of those that when it comes on TV, just watch it, okay? It's just worth your time to watch it. It's a great, great movie. We talked last week about the incarnation of Jesus, where Jesus, the Bible teaches us in Philippians 2, he fully took on humanity without compromising his godness. He fully took on human flesh, bone, and emotion without ceasing to be the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God. But Paul tells us also that he actually emptied himself of his divine rights and privileges he set all the rights and privileges of being God aside when he fully took on flesh without compromising his godness. It's kind of hard to wrap your brain around, isn't it? That Jesus could be fully God and fully man. He emptied himself, which means he subjected himself to all of the effects of the fall without succumbing to the sin of the fall. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. He lived his entire life as the God-man without sinning. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? 
right? We would do good to get through the next 10 minutes, right, without sinning. But Jesus lived his entire human life without sinning. Not only that, but as a man, without giving up his godness, he ministered in power. The question is, how did he do that? Right? It, it's a really, I bet this is a question that you've never thought of before. At least maybe some haven't thought of it before. But it's a really, 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 really important question. Did Jesus, in order to live his entire human life without sinning and to minister in power, did he lean into his divine essence? Was he depending on his godness in order to never sin, in order to minister in power? Did he fight with his right hand? You with me? Did he fight with his right hand or was something else going on? It's a really, really important question. Did he lean into his divine essence or was something else happening? I think the Bible's clear. He could have leaned into his divine. He could have fought with his right hand. Do you remember when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? The soldiers came to arrest him, and when they come, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off one of their ears. And Jesus quickly rebukes him and says, Look, put your sword away. And then he says this, verse 52 of Matthew 26. Jesus says to Peter, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He could have called the angels. He could have leaned into his divine essence as a part of the triune God and called angels. Wiped every last one of them out. Remember when he tells Pilate. You'd have no authority over me, no power over me, were it not given to you from above. Jesus didn't fight with his right hand. So what's he doing? How did he live a sinless life? And how did he minister according to the Father's will in power? How did he do that? Let's back up to verse 14. Back up to verse 14. Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Everybody say power of the Spirit, please. To Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Where is he returning from? He's returning from his temptation in the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan. Go back up to verse 1 and look at that with me. Verse 1 of chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So now Luke says Jesus was full. Everybody say full. Full of the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus was full of the Spirit? Think of baptism. We know when, when typically, depending on your church tradition, more than likely when you think of baptism, you think of people being dunked in water, 
when they are saved, when they become a Christian, we dunk them in water, symbolic of being buried with Christ, raised to new life in Christ. We dunk them in water. And you remember John the Baptist, right? He was baptizing people in the wilderness. It was a baptism of repentance. A lot of people get confused about the word baptism. We've got it associated with this act that we do in church, but the word just means immerse, okay? If you lived in Bible times and you dropped your phone in the toilet, you would say, I baptized my phone. You with me? Okay? If, if you were walking out on a pier, okay, holding hands with your significant other and you tripped and fell into the water, you would say, I tripped and I was baptized in the lake. Okay, that's all the word means. It just means immersion. John the Baptist said this about Jesus. He said, I baptize or I immerse with water. But someone's coming after me, talking about Jesus, who's going to immerse people in the Holy Spirit. Saturate. How many of you understand when somebody's been baptized in water, you can tell? How? They're wet. That's not a trick question. They're wet, right? You can tell when somebody's been baptized in water. Do you think you can tell when somebody's been immersed in the Spirit of God? Absolutely. That's what salvation means. A lot of people tell the gospel this way. Jesus came and died for my sins on the cross and rose from the dead so that I can go to heaven when I die. As though the only benefit of Christ's death is something we experience after death. You with me? But that's not the whole gospel. That is a huge part of it, but that's not the whole gospel. The gospel actually begins this way. Jesus came to immerse people in the Spirit. Saturate. Overwhelm. With the spirit of the living God. How awesome is that? Right? When Jesus was baptized, the Bible tells us that he saw the spirit descend on him like a dove. And so right out of his baptism, Luke tells us Jesus is full of the spirit. And what happens right after Luke tells us that? Jesus is led by the spirit. Jesus, the first thing Luke tells us about him being full of the Spirit is that he is led, that he is depending, that he humbled himself all the way to the point of being led. Wow. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted. And then Luke tells us that when he returned from the wilderness, he returned in the power of the Spirit. So his dependence on the Spirit, his communion with the Spirit, gave rise to power. So that the power that operated through Jesus when he taught, when he performed miracles, signs, and wonders, was not because he was playing with his right hand. You with me? He literally, in his human nature, without compromising his godness, was depending on the Spirit to lead him, to empower him. And then he comes to his hometown. He comes to his hometown and he enters into the synagogue. Now, 
we know this, that between verse 15 and 16, there's probably about a year that has passed. Okay? Jesus has done a lot by this point. He's performed a lot of miracles. He's taught, and his reputation is growing. People are esteeming him very highly. Okay? The question is, why? It wasn't because of his appearance. You know that, right? You know, it's, it's, you ever met somebody that's just physically imposing? You know, that you just look at them and you kind of go, wow. You know, I, I went to um, Clemson University not that long ago, maybe about a year ago, and I went and toured their athletic facility. And as I was there, all these football players were walking around. And I've never felt so small in my life. You know, I grew up a skinny kid, really contrary to how I look now. I grew up a skinny kid with ankles so thin I wore two pairs of socks every time I wore shorts just to make them look thicker. So it's not like I'm, I'm totally unfamiliar with feeling small, but I had never felt so small as these specimens of men are walking around. And I'm like, what, what are they feeding these people? You know, the Bible tells us some things about Jesus' appearance in his glory as the Son of God. Let me read you a couple. This is what Jesus looks like in his glory as the Son of God. Revelation 1.15 His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. That would be intimidating. You would look at someone like that and go, whoa, right? Look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist, his body like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude, a crowd roar. He speaks, and that's what it sounds like. That's what Jesus is like in his glory. But here's what Isaiah tells us he was like during his time on earth. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should have desired him. I think it's reasonable to conclude you could have walked right by Jesus and not even noticed him. Based on his physical appearance. But Luke says people were highly esteeming him. There was something going on in him that was not because he was leaning into his divine nature. All those things about feet like burnished bronze and a voice like many waters or a roaring crowd, that's the stuff that he set aside that he emptied himself of without compromising his divine essence, and he fully took on flesh. And what made him stand out was not his appearance, but it was his dependence. I'm going to say that again. What made Jesus stand out was not his appearance, but it was his dependence on the Spirit. Let's keep reading, verse 16. When he came to Nazareth, where he was brought up, 
as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So he's in his hometown. Some of you have come in from out of town to visit your parents, or you've come to visit your children. So you've come into town, and you've come to church. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. He goes into the synagogue in his hometown like he's done hundreds of times probably by this point in his life. And he goes in. By this point, he is recognized as a rabbi, as a teacher, and it was customary for visiting rabbis to be invited to read from the Scripture. Every time the Jews gathered in the synagogue, there would be readings from the book of the law or the books of Moses, from the Psalms, and from the prophets. And so Jesus is invited to read. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. Now, I don't think Jesus is hunting and pecking in his Bible like we often do. Oh, let me find a verse on anxiety. Uh, Let me find a verse on how to deal with my unruly husband uh, or children, right? I don't think Jesus is doing that. I think in the same way he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, he was led by the Spirit to a particular passage from Isaiah 61. It's a messianic prophecy. In other words, it's a prophecy that foretells of the Messiah who would save God's people. And here's what he reads, verse 18. He stands up, okay, which is what the priest or the rabbi would do when they read the scriptures. They would stand up to read, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice where it starts. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's not fighting with his right hand. Any lefties in here? I'm not trying to discriminate. I'm left-handed too. But you get the point. He's not fighting with his right hand. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do what? To preach good news to the poor. Not to the financially poor, but to the bankrupt of soul. Have you come to that place where you realize that apart from a divine work of grace, your soul and my soul is bankrupt, it's empty, it's poor, it's impoverished? Jesus says, I've come to give good news to the bankrupt of soul that rivers of living water are now going to flow. Amen? And he says, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who are enslaved by sin. This is such a huge part of the good news of Jesus Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're not. I know that sometimes you feel powerless over the temptations that you fight. But the truth of the matter is, we're free. That's why Paul comes along in Romans and says, Reckon yourselves dead to sin. In other words, 
Think this now. You're dead to sin and you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, by the Spirit, I'm going to proclaim liberty to the captives. I'm going to proclaim sight to the blind. Yes, Jesus spoke to blind eyes and they opened. But I think this is bigger than that. I think this is the opening of spiritual eyes to see and savor the beauty and majesty of God. To behold His worth. To set at liberty the oppressed. This is such good news. By the Spirit, Jesus sets us free from the devil. He has no power over us. For those who are in Christ, the Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee. He'll run with his tail tucked between his legs. Amen? We don't have to fear evil. Because Jesus, by the Spirit, everybody say, by the Spirit. I know I'm making you say that a lot, but we've got to get this, by the Spirit. He sets the oppressed free, and then to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You ever heard of the year of Jubilee? It's an Old Testament celebration that happened in Jewish culture every 50 years. You're going to love this. Every 50 years... Everybody's debts were canceled. Come on, somebody. And all property was returned to the original owners. I'm for it. Every 50 years. And Jesus has proclaimed, get this, total cancellations of debt, sin debt, period. How? By the Spirit. So he reads this, and then he sits down. Now, as was custom, when a rabbi or priest, after they had stood and read the Word of God, they would sit down and they would offer their exposition. They would preach. They would teach, just like I'm doing this morning. I read a passage, and now I'm teaching. Jesus sat down. Keep in mind, people are beginning to see there's something really special about this Jesus. I don't know that everybody in that synagogue, if anybody, maybe other than his disciples, knew who he was. They knew there's something going on with this Jesus guy. And we know it's happening by the Spirit. He's not flashing his God card. He's depending. He's being led. Even in reading Scripture, he's being led. He's depending. And the power of the Spirit is working through his words and through his actions. He sits down and everybody is waiting with bated breath. What's he going to say? What's he going to teach? And Jesus preaches the shortest sermon recorded in Scripture. One sentence. Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled 
in your hearing. Everybody bow your heads, cue up the worship team. Shortest sermon ever. I don't remember when I preached my first sermon. I don't remember how old I was or when it was or where it was. It might have been here. I do remember, though, being really stressed out that I was going to have enough to say. If you've ever done any public speaking, you know what it's like where you're just so nervous that you're going to run out and there's like 20 minutes left and you don't know what to do and everybody's looking at you like, is that all you got? I mean, I know I struggled with that early on, but the older I've gotten and the more I've preached, the struggle now is I've got too much to say. <laughs> we had this, during our building campaign, I guess it's still going on, we had this little uh, game among the pastors that every, every time any of us preached over 40 minutes, we had to put a dollar in a jar for every minute over 40. I am so far in debt. You know the commercial with that guy mowing his lawn? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. That's the way I am with this preaching thing. I think in paragraphs. I don't think in sentences because I'm not smart enough to make things as concise as they could be. But Jesus says a ton in one sentence. He reads a passage and in one sentence he totally changes the game. This is fulfilled today in your hearing. Good news is coming to the poor. Captives are going to be set free. Blind eyes are going to be opened. And the year of the Lord's favor has begun. Wow. And yet some of them still looked at him and went, Isn't this Joseph's son? Why would that question even be raised? It wouldn't be raised, would it? If he showed up with feet like burnished bronze? If he showed up and his voice sounded like a crowd roar in the Roman Colosseum? Why would he do that? Why would he empty himself to that point and humble himself to that point? He would actually depend on the Spirit, not only to be led into the wilderness to pass his first test, but even to read from the scripture in Isaiah 61 and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor because the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Here's, here's the big point. Jesus, everything he did in his earthly ministry, including going to the cross and making atonement for our sins, he did it by depending on the power of the Spirit. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. <clears throat> for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, watch this, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who, through the eternal Spirit, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Through the Spirit. 
If you've ever felt like you can't identify with Jesus at all, I hope today that you are dispossessed of that wrong notion. Because you might be asking the question, what does this have to do with me? Everything. Everything. Because if Jesus depended on his divine nature to overcome temptation and minister according to the Father's will, we have no hope for becoming like him. None. Because he, he played. It's like, you know, you ever seen, here's another movie reference. You ever seen the original Superman, right? And where, as he's growing up and being a teenager, he has to learn to restrain his powers in order to be able to identify with those he's going to school with. And at one point he tells his dad, I could score a touchdown every time if I played on the football team. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. He could have taken himself off the cross. Yeah? He could have winked and wiped out everybody that opposed him. But he didn't. He came without giving up his divine nature. He came as one of us and he depended on the Spirit. That means you and I have hope. We have hope in overcoming sin. And we have hope in participating with Jesus by the Spirit in His name to proclaim good news to the poor, to declare liberty to the captives, to set the oppressed free, and declare the year of the Lord's favor. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is no now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do it? By sending his Son... In the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin con condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have a choice. And here's your big choice. Are you going to lean into the Spirit of God that now dwells in you? Or are you going to live your life according to the whims of your dying flesh? That's really the, the, the question. And here's the really good news is that we have a model in Jesus. We have been invited to share in His kind of life. No, we're not divine. We are not like Him in His deity or His divine essence, but we can be like Him in our dependence, our communion, our immersion in the Spirit of God and His power to overcome sin and to minister in His name. 
Jesus fulfilled the law. He took on flesh, emptied himself, became obedient, depended on the Spirit. And now we have an example to live a life like his. Ephesians 5, 17. It's one of my favorite verses. If you write in your Bibles, this ought to be circled, underlined, squared off, starred, highlighted. This is so huge. Ephesians 5, 17. Therefore, don't be foolish. Don't be a fool. How, how can you be a fool? Don't be a fool, but understand what the Lord's will is. Here's an example of a fool. Don't get drunk with wine. This is not a prohibition against alcohol in general. But what this is, is it's a prohibition against wasting your life on stuff that will not satisfy. You can put anything in that blank that you want that's temporary. Don't get drunk on greed. Don't get drunk on the praise of men. Don't get drunk on lust. Don't get drunk on alcohol. Why? That's debauchery. That's a wasted life. You're wasting the gift of God in Christ Jesus and through the Spirit that you now have when you seek to be satisfied, when you seek to find joy, when you seek to find strength, when you seek to anesthetize with anything in this life that doesn't last. It's not that everything in this life is bad and evil. It's just that the Scripture tells us, look, it won't meet the need in your soul. It won't take your bankrupt soul into a place of abundance. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the, come on, say it, have it to the full. How do we have it to the full? Don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. There's examples all over Scripture of this. You think of Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian church. You know what the Bible says about him? Just like Jesus, he was full of the Spirit. When it came time for the church to identify people to, to the ministry of service, this is what they said. Let's find men full of the when Peter and John healed the lame man in the temple and they were accosted by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, Peter speaks up and here's what Luke tells us in Acts, that Peter was full of the... And when they were threatened and they went back to their church, back to the believers to pray, they asked God for boldness and Luke says, and they were filled with the... And they spoke the word of God boldly. All over our Bibles that we can be full. I realize <clears throat> that there's some level of caution we have to exercise when we talk about the incarnation because I see in the church world people swinging the pendulum too far. They talk so much about Christ's deity that no one ever really is able to savor the fact that he fully took on humanity. 
And then there are some that talk so much about his humanity that they diminish his deity. This is not an either-or situation. This is a both-and. Jesus was not, during his earthly ministry, he was not any less God, any more man, any more God, any less man. He was fully God, fully man. The question is, which hand did he fight with? And I think Scripture bears it out. He fought with his left. In his humanity, he depended on the Spirit. Here's a real simple application. Praise team can come. Real simple take home for all of us. If you have not already, begin the habit, the discipline of praying and asking for the Spirit's help. Every time I preach, I pray and I ask the Holy Spirit to use me. Why? Because Jesus taught us in the Scripture that the Spirit is our teacher. I can stand up and talk. I have no problem talking. (laughs) And I might say words that entertain you. But if anything transformative happens, it will be by the Spirit's power. This team can get up and lead worship. And they can sound really good and sing your favorite song. But if anything powerful is going to happen in worship, it's going to be by the Spirit. You and I can be nice to people. Because we think that's what Christians ought to do. Is that we're, we're just nice. We can be nice to people and some might like us. But if anything transformative is going to happen through our kindness, it will be by the Spirit. We can speak words that are true. But can I tell you something? When you're speaking gospel truth to a dead heart, a heart that's hard, the only cure for that is the power of the Spirit. The Bible says, no one can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So, when you pray, before you pray, as you begin your prayer, Holy Spirit, will you help me pray? There's a promise in Scripture that says, in our weakness, the Holy Spirit helps us pray. When you read the Scriptures, ask the Spirit, will you help me understand? There's a promise that Jesus said, the Spirit will bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said. When you endeavor to proclaim the good news, ask the Spirit. Jesus told His disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit will tell you what to say. 
when you face temptation, before you face temptation, ask the Spirit. Because that's how Jesus overcame. By the power of the Spirit. How many of you are thankful that Jesus didn't fight with his right hand? Huh? Come on, if you're thankful, stand to your feet. And let's just begin to give him thanks. Let's give him thanks. That he showed us how to depend on the Spirit. Now, Holy Spirit, as we enter into worship, I pray that you would do something in us that maybe this service is a turning point for, for some, maybe for all, that we would stop trying to lean into our own strength and we would learn to depend on you just like Jesus did. Spirit of the living God, move in our hearts and minds. Amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.